0: You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. So this morning I want to share... um, And the the title of my message is Christ is Our Comfort. Christ is Our Comfort. If you want to turn first um, to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in several different places in the Bible this morning. uh, But I'm going to start out in in Luke chapter 1. I think we're getting in the spirit of Ramadan when they didn't have the air air conditioning on there for a minute. Um... Luke chapter one, and I'm going to read in verse 26, going to verse um, 31. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to a city was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. a uh, teenage girl who's engaged but not yet married, and uh, says to her in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then he says in verse 30, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And this is really interesting to me that he he calls her favored one, and he he says, um, You have found favor with God. Uh, If we turn the page and read in verse 42... Mary goes to her cousin's house, to Elizabeth's house, and when Elizabeth sees Mary, she says this in verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So an angel shows up to Mary. I'm assuming this isn't something that happened very often or ever in her life, and he says, uh, greetings, favored one, you found favored with god you found favor with God, and then she goes to her cousin's house and her cousin says, You are blessed among women. But we've got to remember that Mary is an unwed teenage girl in the Middle East and now she's pregnant. That's not really our view of blessing and favor from God, to be a, a single teenage girl who's not married and pregnant. But God's definition, the Bible's definition, Gabriel's definition of of blessing is this challenge that Mary has in front of her. The shame and the scorn and the misunderstanding that she's going to receive from people because of what God is bringing into her life. Something she didn't ask for, sign up for, or expect, but it's something God has decided to bring into her life. This favor and this blessing of a teenage pregnancy. In the last 200 years or so, Western society, you know, European and American people um, have started using suffering as an argument against the existence of God. How can there be a God if blank happens? How can a good God let this happen? And as far as this last week, as I've been trying to prepare for this message, I can't find that that kind of argument existed in any other culture before the last couple hundred years. People had other arguments against God that he wasn't powerful, as powerful as their God or, or he was too restrictive on the things they wanted to do um, and this, maybe the sins they wanted to commit or the way they wanted to treat people. But this idea that how can there be a God if there's suffering in the world is kind of a new in the history of the world. It's a young complaint. I think what's happened is that people in our culture, in our society uh, have started to believe that if God exists, he exists solely to make us happy or comfortable. And since we're all influenced by this lie, whether we want to believe it or not, we grew up in this culture, since we're all influenced by that message, when suffering comes into our life, we can either feel helpless and alone, on one hand, or completely overwhelmed and shocked and, and unprepared when suffering comes in. What I'm saying is I don't think we're, we're really prepared very often for when bad things come into our lives, and it makes us question God and his goodness. And for some people, it makes them question whether God even exists. 51 years ago next month, 51 years ago next month, a 17-year-old girl went swimming with her sister in the Chesapeake Bay. That day, she had a diving accident that broke her neck and left her a quadriplegic. Today, you probably have heard her name, Joni erickson Tata. She's an artist. Uh, She uses her mouth. She puts pencils and paintbrushes in her mouth to paint. Um, she's an author, a speaker, and an advocate for people with disabilities. And she's still a quadriplegic. She broke her neck that day when she was 17 years old and hasn't been able to use her hands or legs ever since that day. <clears throat> when I was reading Joni's story, um, the biggest thing is she now in her um, 60s, getting close to 70, she suffers with a lot of pain that's associated with her injuries, but she talks about how. The biggest thing for her was the depression, more than the physical pain, was just the, the loneliness and depression she felt after her injury. She couldn't use her arms and legs. Even today, she depends on her husband and her caregivers to feed her, to dress her, to bathe her, to take her where she needs to go. And her struggle was to accept that she would never be healed from her injuries. and she You can imagine somebody when something like this happened, she, she bounced around to a lot of different hopes for relief. She said she, she really got into um, Christianity that focused on healing and miracles and she would follow around faith healers and try to get healed by them. She would have people um, do all kinds of different things that they promised would heal her. She started to say to her friends, um, talk to me like I'm going to walk, believe with me that I'm going to walk, let's say that I'm going to walk because then it'll happen. And, and when that stuff didn't work, she got really, really depressed. She shares how she decided to go with really destructive friends because since she had no use of her arms and legs, the Christians around her wouldn't help her the way that she wanted to be helped. So she made new friends that would give her alcohol and hold alcohol up to her mouth so that she could numb the pain in that way she said one of, her, one of her obsessions for a while was just she wanted to get control of one hand, just one hand so that she could end the suffering on her own terms and escape from life. And she was obsessed with physical therapy and getting better just so she could get out of this life. And then in Joni's story, she starts to talk about how she began to trust Jesus in her pain. Even though she still... Praise for healing and wants God to take this away as she as she began to realize that this is probably the cross that she has to bear in this world. She said she began to feel that Jesus was with her in her pain. This is a quote that just blew me away. How she when she first was a quadriplegic fifty years ago, she hated her wheelchair. She wouldn't admit that she was in a wheelchair. And she said, today I can say I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than on my feet without him. I can really say that I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than on my feet without him. And um, she's written a little book, and the, the image in the book is Moses and the Burning Bush. That's kind of the theme that she uses um, And I was like, what does that have to do with suffering and disabilities? And she explains that um, when Christian, well, in in the Old Testament in Exodus, when when Moses sees the burning bush, uh, he sees that it's on fire, but it's not burning up like it ought to be. He's out in the country with sheep, and if, if something's on fire, it should just go down. That's common sense, but it kept burning and burning and burning. So he walks over to it, and that's where he encountered God. She says that when Christians, that Christians can be like that burning bush. She says that when the unbelieving world sees us suffer but not get burnt up by it, not be destroyed by our suffering, that just like that bush drew Moses in, that our suffering without a bitter spirit draws people to Christ. Just like Moses was drawn to the burning bush that wasn't consumed, our trust in God when we suffer will draw people to the truth and the hope that we have. So this morning, uh, I want to talk about how Jesus dealt with suffering. I say it a lot. I've probably said it from up here more than one time, that all of us in this room, no matter what, what else I don't know about you, I know that you're probably in one of three places with suffering. All of us are probably either just finished with a time of suffering, in a time of suffering, or about to go in a time of suffering. I'm not trying to be pessimistic or negative, but just realistic about what life on earth is like. That doesn't mean it's a huge thing like we're going to be paralyzed for the rest of our life, or the person we love the most will will pass away. Um, It could be stress at work or in our family or, or health nagging concerns. Sometimes it's big things, sometimes it's little things, but we are all surrounded by suffering. This might backfire on me, but I just wanted to ask a question of you all, um, and have you raise your hand. If if in the last two years you have gone through suffering, uh, you've carried a burden, or a sickness, or a pain, uh, and you've felt like basically you've carried it alone, that, that, the, that you haven't shared that with a lot of people. I can say that that's true. Can anybody else say that that's true, that you've carried a burden in the last couple years? Yeah, most people are raising their hands. So I think a lot of us um, carry our burdens alone, and I want to talk this morning about Jesus and how he invites us to suffer in this world. If you'll turn over to Mark 14, just a couple pages back if you're in Luke 1, I'm going to read verses 32 through 41. Mark 14, 32 says... And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So the first thing I want to say about suffering is that Jesus has gone there before us. This is interesting to me that it says here in uh, Mark 14, verse 33, that Peter, James, and John began to see that he was greatly distressed and troubled. There's one thing about, you know, having stress in your life or anxiety that's just inside that nobody knows about or maybe just your spouse or the closest person to you knows about. But when your friends can start to see it on you physically, that's when you know things are pretty bad. His best friends are like, Jesus is not okay. Something's going on here. So Jesus does what he what is his habit in the Bible, whenever he's tired or worn out, he gets away from people for a while to spend time with his father and pray. This is his habit when he does a lot of ministry, then he gets away to spend time with the Father. A good example for all of us. But In this moment of stress and and anxiety and, and uncertainty, he goes away to pray. He takes his three best friends, and he starts really God the Son begging God the Father to help him out. This is a perfect God who's not sinning, who doesn't lack any faith, crying out to God the Father and saying, I am really, really, really suffering right now. If there is a way that this could pass from me, and you can still save the world, please do it. But I know the truth, I know the story, and I know this is what I'm going to have to go through. Just like Jesus, we should pray for healing and relief and comfort in our suffering. God wants us to do that in the Bible. When we're, when we're sick, it says, call on the, the elders of the church and have them pray for you and anoint you with oil. And, and when you're in trouble, call on God and he will answer you. So we want to be a praying church and asking God for miracles. But at the same time, the biblical pattern is not that we're all guaranteed if we just have enough faith and pray hard enough that all our problems are going to go away and we're going to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable here on, on this earth. The Bible has a lot more about how signing up to follow Jesus is the start of your suffering more than the ending of your suffering. Sometimes God does the miracle of healing and comfort, but a lot of times God does the miracle of sustaining you and being with you while you're suffering. I remember one time in our church in Spain, a lady got sick, and um, I think it might have been cancer, and and an older lady um, in the church was praying for her, and and I always remember how she prayed. She said, God, we ask you for the miracle of healing and that the cancer will leave, and we also ask you for the miracle that if the cancer doesn't leave, she can praise you and and trust in you during this whole um, battle. And I had never thought of that's also a miracle from God when a Christian can suffer and keep on praising him and keep on trusting in him throughout the, the whole process. Let's look at verse, verses 37 through 41. Jesus has gone there before us, and Jesus has gone there and ended up alone. Verse 37, he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, could, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Jesus is really, in his time of greatest need right here, betrayed by his friends. He picks the three disciples that he's the closest with. Peter, James, and John, and says, guys, this is the worst moment of my life on earth. Please come with me. Help carry this burden with me. I'm counting on you. And they, they fail him. And he wakes them up and says, guys, you're failing me. And they do it again. These friends can't even carry the burden of Jesus in prayer with him. We all know that sometimes just having a friend who we can listen to, who will listen to us and hurt with us makes things better. Even if they can't fix it, it lightens our load just that someone else cares. And in, in this case, Jesus' closest friends can't even come through for him in that way that night. And so when I slowed down to read this this week, um, it just, it almost made me uh, cry for Jesus in this moment because I just imagine the, the crushing loneliness that he had to feel in the garden that night, that so overwhelmed, and to count on your three closest friends and bring them with you and say, guys, please, and they can't, they can't even hang with him for a few hours. His closest friends didn't understand what he was going through, and before the night was over, all of them had either hidden or denied him or betrayed him. He was abandoned by the ones who were the closest to him. So Jesus has gone there before us. Jesus has gone there before us, and he ended up alone. But the question we have to ask is, why was Jesus willing to go through all of this suffering? If you turn back to John 17, or forward, I guess, John 17. This is fascinating to me. Before Jesus took his, his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, before he said, guys, come pray with me, he had uh, the Last Supper with them, and he had a time of singing hymns and praying with them, and he prayed this prayer in John 17. It's called the High Priestly Prayer, um, and it's basically Jesus—well, let's, let's read it. Verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is the prayer that Jesus prayed right before he went to the garden of Gethsemane. He prays this prayer with his disciples. He knows he's facing his death. And in this prayer, he is reminding us and reminding his disciples what true life is. He's facing his death. But his last message to us is, what is true life? Verse 3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In the face of death, Jesus is talking about life. On the other side of the suffering that's right in front of him is life. And I just want to encourage you this morning that the other side of whatever you're walking through is life. The other side of your suffering is life. It may be 70 years from now when you really get to experience that. It may be tomorrow morning when you get to experience that. But the suffering that you're dealing with, whatever it is in your life or whatever you're going to deal with in the future, is not an eternal suffering for Christians. This life is so short compared to eternity. And I just, I love how Jesus, even in the most um, terrible moment of his life on earth, as he's just about to be betrayed and crucified, he's reminding us what life is, and that is knowing God in Jesus. In, In John 17, verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus went through everything he went through on earth. He bought us and brought us into the family for God's glory. That's why. He loved us. The love that he had for us motivated. But the biggest motivation in Jesus' life is for the glory of the Father. Worship, praise, the honor that God deserves, that is what drove every action that Jesus had on earth. We are going to suffer in this life. That's not negotiable. You can't get around that if you're going to be alive. But what is optional, what we can decide is if we're going to glorify God in our suffering or if we're going to become bitter and reject him in our suffering. We will go through dark times, but we can choose how we respond and whether we trust God in those times. There's... Um, this sentence that I came across that has really been encouraging me, and, and I think if, you are, if you're facing um, a challenge right now, this may be um, encouraging to you too. So you might want to write this down. I love this sentence. It says, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And the greatest example of this that we have is Jesus and his death on the cross. Jesus, God permitted Judas to um, betray Jesus. God permitted the Roman soldiers to crucify him, and it was all. Those are things that God hates. Those are sins, but He let it happen in order to accomplish His worship and our salvation. God permits what He hates to accomplish what He loves. God is so sovereign, God is so uh, in charge of this world, that even those who disobey his commands fulfill his will. He's so in charge that even the people who are sinning against him are fulfilling his plans for this, this world. Even when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, that set in motion God's plan for this world. And I just want to encourage you this morning that whatever is happening in your life, even if it's a terrible injustice that you're suffering, if it's a loss that you're suffering, God's not with his hands tied and can't do anything about that. God is allowing that to happen to accomplish something that he loves in your life. You, you may not know it until heaven, but he, we don't have a weak God who, who couldn't stop or, or isn't in control. He's letting things happen for your good because he loves you. And what he asks is this, that we trust him. When those things happen, Uh, Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis 50 um, says to his brothers basically, When you kidnapped me and sold me into slavery, and when I was falsely accused of all these crimes and thrown into prison, when all these bad things happened to me, you meant it for evil because you hated me, and God meant it for good. Even the most terrible things that happen in the world, God can take those and use them for something good. This doesn't mean that we call evil good. Isaiah 5.20 says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And I don't want to become the kind of person that, uh, you know, when, when someone loses a loved one, when someone loses their job or gets sick, that's, oh, it, it's fine, no big deal. That's, you know, it'll be good. That's not what God is asking us to do to minimize bad things. But he's asking us to trust that he has a good plan on the other side of the bad things. And I think in order to glorify God in our suffering and in our hardship and in our lives, this, the Bible is essential. Scripture is essential. And if we're not filling ourselves with the Bible and God's promises, then we will be helpless when the attacks of the devil come and when suffering comes into our lives because we won't have God's promises ready to fight this battle of faith it's so important to either to be reading the bible to be however you can take it in listening to it on the way to work singing songs uh, memorizing passage, passages of scripture listening to good sermons however you can get the bible in you it will be there ready to help you fight the fight of faith. But if you, if you just fill up your life with everything else and God and his word is just a Sunday morning thing for you, then don't be surprised when, when you don't have legs to stand on when bad things come into your life. We have to hide his word in our hearts if we're going to be able to stand in the day of trouble. Here's one amazing promise that we can hide and, and uh, count on when bad things happen. In Isaiah 30, a few verses. So this is the main, I, I had them put in the bulletin that this is the passage for the, the, the sermon because I just think this promise is amazing. And this is, if you remember anything from this morning, uh, remember these verses. Isaiah 30 verses 18 through 20 say, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eye shall see your teacher." So what's this Jerusalem and, and bread and um, Zion? This is a promise God is making through the prophet Isaiah to his people. He's making, at first, he's making the promise in the Old Testament and, and saying, this is going to happen, I'm going to deliver you guys. But this promise in the Old Testament isn't ultimately fulfilled in Israel. This promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Who is our teacher? Who is the ultimate fulfillment of a teacher? Jesus who is, who is Jerusalem? The new Jerusalem, that's the church. That's us. We live in this land, and our teacher Jesus promises that he will be with us. This verse is amazing to me. Verse 20, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Can anybody relate to that? That it just feels like even food. Something I got to do three times a day. The, the hits just keep on coming over and over and over. Can't something just go right for a little while? Even if God gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher, Jesus, your Savior, will not hide himself. Your eyes shall see your teacher. Even in adversity, he is with us. We don't see him with our physical eyes yet, but we will one day. This is what Joni Erickson taught her in her wheelchair when she just wanted to end her own life. This is what broke through to her, that Jesus is with her, that Jesus is the true, the real Emmanuel, God with us. I was talking about Joseph and his life and and how he said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Uh, look at the life of Joseph. Here's a few verses I'm going to read quickly. They may show up on the slide. I think Acts seven nine. In the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Genesis thirty nine two. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Genesis thirty nine three his master saw that the lord was with him and that the lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands but the lord was with joseph and showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor genesis 39:21 the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in joseph's charge because the lord was with him whatever he did the lord made it succeed genesis 39:23 God was with Joseph, and that same God, if you're a Christian, is with you. He lives in you. He's with you. Joseph was able to endure all these injustices and sufferings in his life because he knew that God was with him. Whenever we talk about suffering, there's a word that that comes up, When someone's going through a hard time and the word is compassion right we we want to be compassionate people we want to be shown compassion uh from other people and and i think that word we usually think of compassion as just somebody being nice to us right or someone helping us end the pain you know um, the mercy rule if if one team's beating up on the other team so bad have some compassion and stop and and quit scoring runs but really, the word compassion, that's what we really want, and that's what Jesus has to offer us. It means to suffer with someone. Passion means suffering. It doesn't mean love and romance. It means suffering. The Passion Week, the week of before Easter, is the week that Jesus suffered. And calm means with or together. Compassion is to suffer with someone and every suffering and hardship and in dark time that we go through in life is a chance to trust god and, and depend on him or to go our own way to be alone to cut ourselves off from god and to doubt his goodness but i want to have the the mentality of uh, this old british preacher charles spurgeon who said i've learned to kiss the wave That throws me against the rock of ages, and he's not just being you know no big deal. If I lose everything, if people I love die, no, he's he's. (laughs) I mean, it's a wave throwing him against a rock. It's terrible, but if the rock is Jesus, and our suffering drives us to him, we can thank him for it. In order to trust God in the midst of suffering, we have to get a biblical view of what suffering is. We, we have a suffering savior. There's no other religion in the world like this where God comes to earth and dies for people and lets his people kill him to save them. All other, This is why I love Christianity. I believe Christianity because so many things don't make sense. That If you were just going to invent a religion, you would invent one. Uh, like mormons or or Muslims with a lot more power and domination, and a God who who does more logical stuff than dying for people he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Our God died on a cross, but the message of our culture and, and our gut instinct as human beings. Uh, is to do anything and everything we can to get away from suffering, to run away from it, to fix it, to medicate it, to quit the job that's hard, to have a few drinks, to forget our problems, to avoid being honest if the, the conversation is going to be uncomfortable. We'll do anything to avoid suffering or pain. We'd rather Jesus say, trust me and all your problems will go away rather than what he really says in Luke 9, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The world says, you do you. You live for you. Find your best life now. And Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think that one thing that, that I, God has had to teach me and has to keep on teaching me is that when I followed Jesus and when I said Christianity is my identity, that I was signing up for a life of dying. And I think I just, I had it in my mind that I was supposed to ask Jesus in my heart when I was a little kid and be a good person, and now bad things won't happen to me. But really, what we see in the Bible If we don't let the world tell us what to expect, if we let God tell us what to expect, he says, you're giving your life up for this. You are following me because eternity is worth more than life on earth. So compassion, to suffer with somebody, that doesn't mean we, we make it all better or that God always makes it all better right then. It means journeying alongside of somebody who's suffering, hurting with them, encouraging them. Gently, when the time is right, reminding them of God's goodness and promises. And that's what Jesus does with us, and that's what we want to do as Christians for one another. Some of you probably know our story. Um, Cassie and I, in uh, 2013, had a really bad time when we came back to the States of um, loss, and, and um, then after that, me really struggling with anxiety and panic attacks and really just felt like I was losing my mind, but we had a terrible time here where somebody crashed their car into our house and uh, we lost uh, an unborn baby uh, and uh, just a lot of fear and loss happened in a really short amount of time. And for me, my reaction a few months later, I think once my adrenaline came down a little bit, was I just started to kind of crumble and was having a really hard time sleeping and, and uh, calming down. And in one sense, I would say I, I hate that summer and the fallout uh, of everything that happened. It was terrible and terrifying. Um, but I, I think I can stand up here today and say in, in another way, I thank God for it. Because even as he hated it and, and he cried with us, he used it as a wave that drove us against the rock of ages. I, I remember at night just saying, Jesus be with me, Jesus be with me, Jesus be with me. It was the only way I could fall asleep sometimes. And um, just that God put those words in my mouth in my darkest time, uh, helped me to to never be afraid again whether I was a Christian or not. To never be afraid again whether or not I belonged to God, which I had kind of doubted my whole life. Am I really a Christian or not? And he used the darkest time in my life to give me this deeper faith that I belong to him. I believe that God loves us and at the same time that he permitted what he hated in order to accomplish what he loved, which was a deeper relationship As an old friend, uh, a mentor in Granada, an old missionary guy said to me, uh, and he had lost his wife to cancer, he said at, at the end of this summer, he said, Brian, I wish there was a way that we could grow spiritually without suffering, but I've never seen it. I wish there was a way we could grow spiritually without suffering, but I've never seen it. So two promises that I want to leave you guys with to hold on to. Um, You should write them down or decorate your house with them or or whatever. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's one of those basic verses that we have kids memorize in Sunday school, but it is so true and so important as you face things in life that all things work together for good what feel like the worst things. God is working together for your good. I want you to believe that you have a God who's in control. He's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And you may not find out what he's up to this side of eternity. But one day in heaven, we'll praise him and, and he'll show us what he was doing. Why did I have to go through that? He'll tell us. 1 Peter 5.8 is another one. 1 Peter 5.8, Joni erickson a quoted and the stuff that I was reading from her. Um, and she, so if she can say it in her wheelchair for 50 years, I feel like I can say it this morning. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal go- glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So this, Peter wrote this, who suffered persecution Physical persecution in his body. Joni Erickson and can hold on to this promise with 51 years in her wheelchair. Her, the only thing she can do is use her mouth, nothing else. Somebody has to get her out of bed every morning. And if they can say suffering is just for a little while, I want to be able to say suffering is just for a little while too. Life is a vapor. But God in Christ will restore, confirm, and strengthen you. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 is the third promise. I didn't put it on a slide, but it's an amazing thing to look forward to. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is nothing on this earth, no suffering on this earth, that eternity won't heal. Suffering for us while we're alive is a mirror, I think, that shows us who we really are. When I don't get what I expect or what I want, it gives me a little more insight into um, my idol's and the things I think I deserve or the way I think life should go for me. And it's meant to drive us back into the arms of God when we suffer. That's why he permits what he hates. Our reactions when we, when we suffer can be, God, I can't handle this. I can't do this on my own. Help me. And so it drives us back to him. Or our reaction, if it's suffering that, that we've kind of brought on to ourself or sin that we've committed, We can say, I'm a broken, sinful person. God, forgive me. Either way, he lets this pain drive us back to him. The story of Jacob is the last story I want to tell this morning in Genesis 32. And so Jacob is, um, you know, uh, the twin brother. He's the deceiver of Esau. He pretended to be Esau so he could get the birthright, and he ran away. And in Genesis 32, he wrestles with God. So I thought this was a really cool story when I was a kid. He's like, his pillow is a rock, and he wrestles with God, and then he gets, he has to limp from then on afterwards. And I think a lot of us, I, I always thought of like, that's the time when Jacob became one of God's followers, whenever he, whenever he joined the family. And uh, that's kind of his conversion. But as I was uh, reading, really, Jacob had already started to follow God and trust him in Genesis 32. He believed God. He had an encounter with God at a a river. And God says, go back into the promised land where his brother, who he thinks wants to kill him, is still waiting. And so he takes this huge risk and gets all of his family and his possessions, and he's heading back towards the promised land. So I think he's already converted. He's already trusting in God. But along the way of trusting God, we have this story in Genesis 32 where he wrestles with God. And from then on, for the rest of his life, he's crippled a little bit. He, he doesn't walk right. He has a limp. So here's the question. How do you expect God to respond to a man who obeyed him at the risk of his own life? He's put his life on the line to obey his word and to follow his will. And he's seeking him in prayer. And he's filled with fear and at the end of his rope. How does God respond to a man who's utterly obedient, seeking him in prayer, scared, and at the end of his rope? What does God do to a man like that? He clobbers him. He knocks him down, literally. He assaults him, and he maims him and makes him crippled for the rest of his life. This is not the God of maybe really liberal churches that say, I just love you the way you are. I don't have any requirements on your obedience. Just you do whatever you want and just know that I love you. Just feel good. And it's also not the God of maybe the conservative or legalistic churches who say, if you go to church and if you read your Bible and if you give offering and if you volunteer at the church and if you're a good person, then everything will go great for you. Your kids' lives will be neat and tidy. You can control people. You won't lose your job. You'll have enough money. Your loved ones won't get sick. Neither one of those things. God says, I'll cripple you. How about that? He scars him. And to to quote this pastor and author Tim Keller, God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather to comfort us into one. God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than to comfort us into one. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure and our joy. When we see a beautiful sunset, when we get to hold our kids, that makes it, we feel God's smile. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. I know that's, God gets our attention when we're suffering. God shouts to us in our pain. If money and health and prosperity drove us to God, that's probably what we'd get, because that's what God wants is a relationship with us. And if everything going great in your life really drove you to God, I'm sure he would give you more of that. And Jesus probably would have been a rich professional athlete instead of a homeless construction worker who got murdered in his 30s. But the Bible seems to say God gets our attention and gets a relationship with us when we suffer. Okay, I'm going to finish up here. John 15 Another thing Jesus said, verse 9, As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And he's saying this right before he prays that prayer, right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he dies on the cross. As my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And what he's saying is relationship is the key. Even as he invited his followers to die To take up their crosses, to embrace a life of suffering, he says, I love you. Abide in my love. And that is the only way to endure suffering and not be crushed by it, to do it with Jesus and abiding in his love. To close, let me read Isaiah 30 again, that promise. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore but your eyes shall see your teacher. And our teacher is Jesus. He invites us into a a daily, personal, love relationship with him. Even in your darkest time, he will not hide himself from you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I thank you that you don't just uh, give us a list of things to do, to earn salvation or to earn your favor. Even after becoming Christians, it's not just do's and don'ts, but it's a relationship. I thank you, Lord, that um, you sent your son, God the Son, Jesus, who died in our place to give us his perfect righteousness and to pay for our sin. Thank you for our substitute. And uh, for this example of... uh, suffering and how to suffer with you we ask lord just that we could have faith to trust you to know that you're good even in those moments when it when we wonder and it doesn't feel good Uh, help us to trust you lord and help us to support one another and love one another as we all go through dark times in this life i thank you for your great love lord we we don't deserve it but we need it without you we have no hope and so we thank you for the life that you've given us and the hope that you offer. I pray that anybody that's here today that doesn't know that hope, that, that you would meet them and that they would come to trust in you. Help us, Lord, today to, to love the people around us and just to know how much you love us and how much we need you a little bit more. I pray all this in Jesus' name.